everybody. Um, I'm just going to out-shout you. I can still do that. Uh, we need to make just one minor housekeeping uh, thing, and that is next week we are scheduled to meet at noon, even though it's the day before Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm hoping you all want to do that. Uh, is there, how many of you cannot, could not be here? What are your other thoughts? Cause it's I like have no other thoughts. A little crunchy. Yeah. A little crunchy. Um, I don't have, we could extend a day on the other end. I think we could do that, but we know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's important because next week, um, if we were here, we would be getting into kind of the American church experience. And, and that's really important to us. I think it'll be more interesting maybe than perhaps some of the things that we have talked about thus far. So we'll plan on not meeting next week, and then we'll extend one week out. That, is everybody okay with that? Good. Okay. Uh, one request. If there's anyone that you normally see here yeah. that you don't see here today, um, could we try to personally share that? information and update. We'll do so in the bulletin as well, but... Could you contact them and let them know? Okay, okay good. Yeah. Thank you. Good. And uh, Heather will put that on like the, the bulletin. You bet. Okay, yep. good. Well, the Lord be with you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of each of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our reading. Um, two things. Number one, uh, we, we have moved now to that Reformation period. If you want to frame a reference to that, think about uh, Columbus, 1492, and roughly that's the period of time that we're talking about these great reforms in Europe. Uh, I think what it's important uh, to, to remember that the, the religious reformation or Luther's reforms were, were not isolated from what was going on throughout Europe, through the, the breakdown of the whole medieval systems, uh, a, a rise of the middle class, uh, a rise of uh, an economic system, uh, labor unions called guilds. Uh, the, what's happening is you're developing a middle class. And uh, the old, you know, the old need for uh, the medieval system, the feudal system of, you know, the, the role of the king was to do what? Protect the peasants, and the role of the peasants was what? Make the king wealthy. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it, it's a nice trade. It works. Uh, it works as long as everybody has similar needs. Uh, the church, the church is not an isolated entity in the Middle Ages. Um, the church is affected by the very same thing. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, the system that was in place, remember, uh, of, 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 of governance, hierarchy and governance, um, is beginning to crumble. And, and with the rise of the middle class, what do you get? You get an educational system that's starting to develop. And, uh, and as the result of the, uh, the rise of an educational system, uh, people's needs change and 
and uh, people um, respond far differently than, than, than they did. Um, Luther is not an isolated reformer. I think that's extremely important to know. Uh, there were other people that brought similar kind of reform issue to the fore. Um, what, what saved Luther in the sense is he had the, he had the protection of, 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 of the state where he lived. I mean, he was able to function when other reformers did not have that, and as a result, they were typically executed. But Luther was not the first person to say, hey, we've got problems here within the church. Um, he did it, or apocryphally, he did it in dramatic fashion by going down to the, uh, the church door at Wittenberg and, and nailing 95 issues that he thought were contentious on the door. Um, I've always had difficulty sort of picturing, I mean, if you think about 95, I mean, that's voluminous. Um, but, but that's what history has kind of recorded that, that he did. Um, my guess it might have been a few things uh, shorter than that, than 95. Uh, but, you know, these are the myths that begin to develop. Uh, it's also important for us to know that, and remember that Luther was a scholar primarily. He was, he was a biblical scholar. He was a, a, a New Testament scholar, excuse me, an Old Testament scholar. But that did not isolate him from reading New Testament and, and sharing that discipline as well. But, but he was an academic. Um, he, he was not a parish priest in the sense that he later, he later emphasized. Uh, he, he was, a, he was a, a scholarly theologian. He was a member of uh, a religious order, the Augustinians. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he, was in the, he was in the system. That's, that's really important to, to, to remember. He, he was not a rebellious person by nature. Uh, in fact, he, he acquiesced quite a bit. He was a, he was a person of, uh, I guess the Germans would call a person possessed by something called angst, huh? uh, an, an uncertainty. If you, if you characterize, I guess, the personality of Luther, and many people have done that in, in hindsight, uh, he, he was, uh, he was uh, obsessed with this whole notion of how does one become right with God? I mean, there's, I mean he, some of his behavior, I'm sure, would, uh, would merit, uh, today would merit visits to psychiatrists, I'm, I'm quite certain. Um, he purged himself, he uh, did all sorts of uh, uh, sort of religious disciplines, uh, attempting to do what? Uh, attempting to get right with God. There's this direction always going up for Luther. Because that was, that was the critical issue of the time, was it not? Luther was, what do I have to sacrifice, Lord, in, in order to be right with you? I mean, it, that's a way, I guess, of paraphrasing it, but that's precisely um, the system that was present within the church. What does the church have to do to, to win God's favor? And remember, last week we talked a great deal about um, the, the, the direction of sacrifice always is vertical, but it's always up. What, what do we have to do? Now, that, that language even sort of betrays it. 
what do we have to do, and here's the rest of the sentence, in order that. Okay. So the, the critical question then becomes, in order. And so, so you have all sorts of prescriptions of uh, what would please God. Uh, well, what things would please God? We still have some of that in most of us today, don't we? You know, um, if, if, God, if, if God is seen as our parent, what does it take to win the favor of your parent? Probably this. Probably be good, <laughs> you know. Uh, let's see. I mean, that's that's the Christmas theme, isn't it? I mean, if you're good, you get, and if you're not, you get. You know. I, I, although I wonder today if any kids have any sense of cold. Uh, I was thinking. I was thinking that. You know. Might be propane in your, you know, or something. I don't know. But, but you know, uh, there. That is. That's a dated. Uh, understanding, isn't it? Uh, I, I can remember when uh, I was in grade school and, and there was a boy in my class named Jimmy Poshart. I remember his name so well. I mean, that's how it's indelibly imprinted in my brain. And uh, I knew that Jimmy was not like us. I knew he was very poor because of the way he dressed. Uh, we were in a Cub Scout troop and he, he didn't even have a uniform. He just came. But anyhow, uh, one one morning we came to uh, school and Jimmy's dad had been killed uh, the night before, hit by a train because what he was doing was going along the tracks and picking up coal that would fall out of the cars. You know, you know that that's poverty. Uh, I don't I, I don't know. That's how it was imprinted in my brain. You know, coal was something terrible. Um, but but this whole notion of being good, because being good is equal to something else that Lutherans are familiar with. Being worthy. And, and we don't have to go too far in our history uh, from uh, an understanding of what worthy means. To, to, to be worthy is to be, to be acceptable by God. Is that a way of Maybe that's a good way of understanding that. And, and this is precisely the system that Luther grew up in. Um, and, and I'm guessing that this isn't too far removed from many of the things that you and I heard when we were little. And, and, if, we, and if we are not cautious, we have to be very careful we don't pass it on. I mean, we, we, we do like people to be good. Huh? And, uh, and, uh, and the, good, the good are rewarded and the poor are punished. I mean, that's, that's the way the system works. That's our sort of notion of justice. And, and, and this, is the, this is the world of Martin Luther. Because it's the world of the church. Now, it's an it's extremely effective world. You know, if you, if you want to get something done, um, guilt works. I mean, all of us who are parents know something about that. Uh, guilt, guilt's effective. 
So is fear. Threats, threats work. Um, if you don't want your kid uh, touching the stove, what do you, you know, you don't go into a whole thing on thermodynamics, you're going you're gonna to get hurt. You're going to burn, you know. Um, and that's sufficient. It's preventative. And, and so I'm saying that this, this whole system is governed by fear. And it's extremely, it's extremely effective. Now, if you support the medieval system with a, with a need, like, for example, the need to raise money so they can get St. Peter's built, uh, you, can, you can find uh, it's not a very far step into the wholesale indulgences. Uh, as, as any pastor will tell you, um, Stewardship is probably one of the most uh, awkward and uncomfortable issues for most pastors. Um, I grew up in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, where once a year um, there was a list, a published list, of every giving unit within the church and what they gave. Yeah, and, and it was always it was always good food for lunch. Because <laughs> uh, you could look at certain people that you knew and see, well, hey, wait, you know, we know them very, very well. I had a neighbor across the street, and it was always amusing to my father and my mother um, how little they gave and how well they lived. So there's a correlation there. But, but you know, this whole concept of stewardship, it's time, talents, and treasury time. Let's face it, it's really treasures. And, 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 uh, and, and any way that you can uh, that you can get that idea across, uh, pastors struggle with that. How, how do you do that? Uh, for, for Luther, then, this was the system. And, uh, and so, So, and behind the system, of course, behind the system is, remember again, this whole issue of, of direction, of, of sacrifice. Luther's chief reform is to flip the arrow. Maybe that's a crass way of putting it. But to change the direction of action. So it is not from ourselves to God, but from God to us. So that the critical word then is not anymore so that, but but because. Because God acts first. Out of that flows response. Now that's a critical difference. Why uh, why are you giving me this gift? Um, because I want to. Because that then is in the mind of the giver, not the receiver. So the focus then is solely on what? On, on God's action. There was, a, uh, there was a, a, an author named Rule Howe, and he wrote a wonderful book called uh, 
Man's need God's action. And I think that gets it right. That we, we always start with what is God doing, what's in the mind of God. Now, that's true practically. So, so that when a pastor begins this, the, the week looking at the gospel for the coming Sunday, the, the question is not, what am I going to do with this text? The question is, what's God doing in the text? And, and that's an entirely different uh, direction. Because if that's where we start, then we have a less danger of this sermon becoming law rather than gospel. What's God about here? What what need is God meeting? Why why are these stories that Jesus told why are they so critical? Because because they address the critical issue of God acting for us, which is so complicated to understand, or so hostile to understand. But remember, going back then, clear to where we started our time together, coming out of Judaism, Judaism is based on what? A fulfillment of the Torah. Hmm? Fulfillment of the Torah. And you can understand then why this is such a, a radical departure, this preaching of Jesus. Where, where law isn't the critical thing, but gospel is. Now that's a tough one to grasp, huh? That's a very tough one to grasp. Uh, and, and, and it resulted, though, then in, in Luther's entire reform. Well, how are you gonna how are you gonna know about this? How how are you gonna know what is the mind of God? Well you the, the revealer of the mind of God is what? The scriptures. Huh? The scriptures are recorded insight into the mind of God. Is that a way of understanding that? You know, recorded insight into the mind of God. And and if you if you don't have the scriptures available then what? Well, not only do you have to have the scriptures available, but remember in Luther's time, how many people could read? Very, very few. Very few. So the necessity then is for preaching or proclamation that is based out of the scriptures to reveal the mind of God. Is that a way of understanding? So, so Luther, in a sense, uh, in, in a sense, really was the father of a whole school of preaching called textual expository preaching. That's a big, long term. Textual <coughs> expository, text, expository, exposing <laughs> preaching. So that when Heather went to seminary, that's what she was schooled in doing. There's just two sort of schools or classes of preaching, I suppose. One is thematic. Uh, we'll talk about love. The second is textual. 
will look in the text, the biblical authority, or the biblical you know, revelation, and, and from that will expose the notion of God's love. So it's a case in one sense of direction. But, but Heather has been schooled uh, to be disciplined in, in textual expository preaching so that there's no chance that Heather gets on some kick and just sort of for, you know, the next year and a half she does a thing on justice, okay? Be because she's been disciplined that out of the texts she reveals what is the nature of God. That's, 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 that's wonderful. Where did we get that? Well, in, in one sense, that's the gift of a lectionary or assigned texts. And for that, we got that right out of synagogue worship. Because Jews, in their preaching, they have preaching, are, are following a certain passages of scripture that are in a rhythm. So that what classifies us as a liturgical church is not that we have a liturgy, but that we follow a liturgical year. So that it's a guarantee, reader guarantee, that every year you're going to hear something about the incarnation of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, full of grace and truth. It guarantees that every year you're going to hear something about the resurrection. You know? Uh, and, and it's not going to be some whim of the pastor. You got, you got that guarantee. You know? And, and um, the question then becomes, how many times do you need to hear that? Well, you can see how <coughs> fragile this system is. <coughs> it's a very fragile system, this, this sacramental system versus the sacrificial system. Because the world that we live in is based on, and the church in the midst of that, counter to the world we live in, is based on that. Now, it's very fragile. Remember I said it's very, very fragile. Look at, look at our, our sacramental life. The, the, the purest, I suppose, exposition of this might be every Sunday uh, when, again, you hold out your hands huh? and, you and you receive. Isn't that interesting language? You don't take. We don't take communion. You take stuff that doesn't, you know, you take the hubcaps or whatever. Okay. You, you receive a gift. And, and, and that, that language is really important because as long as we use that, use that language of receiving, then we have the, the direction right. So you, you receive that. But, but look how much stuff in our Lutheran history we have put in between the receiving and the one that, well, we stuck in, you have to know certain things. You've got to be worthy. You've got to be, uh, what, confirmed. You've got to be, you, you got to be something. You've got to go register. You got, you know? Uh, and, and so that's a very, very fragile gift because, as I was taught when I was little, you don't want to do this indiscriminately. You don't want to, do, you do it to your own damnation if you do that. Uh, if, if you're, you know, 
12 years old, that scared the hell out of me. And, and, and so it, that language is so precious. Uh, as a pastor, and I'm sure Heather must feel the same way, when we, when we commune people on Sunday morning and people bring up young children, and, and the parents say they don't they don't they don't take us. It's like a freaking knife going in there. You know? What do you mean? Well they just get a blessing. You know what I'm saying? What's a more tangible blessing than the body and blood of Christ? Hmm? Uh, why are we worried that this little child would would, uh, would not be able to they eat, don't they? From the time they are born, they eat, and they recognize their parents give them food. You know, a kid doesn't come for supper, and their parents give them a blessing and say, you know, come back when you're 12. <laughs> but they feed them. See that? And that's the church. The church feeds those that have birthed. you cannot give birth and then say, well, come back 12 and we'll give you your first meal. Uh, no. And, and in the meantime, you know, we'll give you some other stuff to tie you over. It's being born and eating as every parent here knows, and particularly all of you women who have children. When you when your child cries independently, I mean, that's the, that's the, the inseparableness of it. So that maybe in a sense we don't have two sacraments, maybe we have one. Maybe it's a unitive concept of birthing and eating. And, and come back next week and we'll do it again. Burn it on. You know. Okay. So, um, that's Luther's reforms of preaching the vernacular, because Luther was concerned that everyone had the capability of understanding this. Not completely comprehending it, but at least it being a language that's, uh, that's understandable to them. So the vernacular was the sacrament versus sacrifice, preaching, and, and the mass in the vernacular. And again, I think I mentioned last week, uh, even though sometimes the word mass is foreign to Lutherans today, it wasn't foreign to Lutheran. And many Lutheran congregations celebrate the mass. Oh, by the way, I just gave you a hint. Celebrate the mass. When, when I was growing up, communion was anything but a celebration. It was sort of funereal, you know. Uh, First of all, I think we talked about this last week, you were ushered out of your pew if you had the ticket. You know, give it to the usher. Uh, and you got the ticket by going down to confess or register with the pastor, usually Saturday night or Friday night before. And, um, and uh, where did you receive communion? Well, you took communion, but what was your posture typically? Yeah, you were, you were on your knees. Now, it doesn't take, you know, you don't have to be uh, too right to figure out, this is a submissive pose. Um, this is a 
concerning the church and, uh, and and as I listed for you on the handout for today, he, he's not alone. There's some other people raising similar questions in other places, particularly in Switzerland, in Zurich. But uh, before I get to that, one, one, last, one last thing relative to Luther. Luther is what they call a conservative reformer. In other words, conservative, he wants to keep some stuff. Um, when we get to, like, for example, Zwingli, when we get to the Anabaptists, they are not conservative reformers. It all goes. Huh? Uh, Luther, Luther had no problem with, um, with architecture and symbols. He, he said they are, what they are uh, not to uh, not to become more important than what is essential, but they're helpful. So Luther, for example, wore vestments. Luther, in the architecture that his followers inherited, kept primarily the buildings intact. They got rid of a few things. They got rid of, for example, uh, the side altar where we were to worship and pay a homage to Mary. But, but pretty much, Luther was a conservative reformer. Had no problem with the mass, the central, as long as the direction was such, and there wasn't language of sacrifice. But but he was conservative in that nature. When you when you get along to the Anabaptists, I mean they burned churches. They they stripped them. They got rid of everything. They got rid of vestments. They got rid of uh, all the all the symbols within the architecture. If you've been to, you know, uh, some churches today, you know, go to a Baptist church, for example, you don't find, you find a different architecture than you find here. Um, and, uh, and so Lutheran, Lutheran, in that sense, is a conservative reformer. He kept what was essential. I always describe him as he was both liberal and conservative. He was liberal with grace and conserved what was essential. 
sort of like Menominee's progressive but to the tradition. Traditional, progressive but like traditional. I, I can't quite figure that one out. I think we're trying to please all everybody. Yeah. I know. Okay. Uh, what were some other issues by the other uh, reformers? Um, the, the, the one that I want to talk about a little, uh, for a moment, and I can't give a whole lot of uh, time to each of these, Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli. Um, he, was, uh, he, he was the only real reformer that never founded a church, or there was no church founded around him. He, he raised some very, very critical questions. He, uh, he, he, rejected um, the, the understanding of real presence within the sacrament. Uh, and, and he said that the body and the blood of Christ, the, the wine and the bread are, are symbolic. Okay? Now, between Lutherans and Roman Catholics, remember both, both denominations recognize the real presence of Christ. This is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ. Now, now, in some senses, I'm not. I haven't heard this for a while. They make some effort to try to explain how this happens. Um, there was in the old liturgies, uh, the Roman Catholic liturgies, there was a point in the Mass, the Eucharistic prayer, where a bell was rung. Okay. At, at, at that moment, what happens? The the bread becomes the body of Christ, the blood becomes the, the wine becomes the blood of Christ, different than what it was before that. I mean, there's an, an effort to try to, to describe when this happened. Still, some places do. Yeah. Do they know here? Yeah. You get in more progressive Roman Catholic churches. For example, I'm thinking Newman community in Eau There is real presence as we would. Um, and, and there was a, a language that was used, transubstantiation, consubstantiation. Um, I, I just don't hear that language much. David, I don't, I don't hear that much anymore. I like to impress the third graders with that sometimes. But for Zwingli, for Zwingli, it wasn't an issue. Um, the, the, the bread and the wine are, are symbolic. Now, out of that tradition that, that uh, Zwingli raised, or the objections that Zwingli raised, there are some there are some denominations today that understand things that way. Who? UCC. Good, David. UCC. Presbyterian. The UCC. Yeah. Presbyterians to a degree. And yeah, Methodists, a UCC, as David points out, so so that uh, so so that there's not a notion of the real presence of Christ, and, and that was one of Zwingli's one of Zwingli's issues. Um, Zwingli um, Zwingli was one that said if you cannot uh, if you cannot substantiate something by scripture, then it's an apple. That, that has no meaning. 
your scripture is the absolute authority for everything we do in practice. Zwingli was a reformer without a church. I guess that would be our best way of, of doing that. He, he pointed out some issues and then others later picked up on um, I, I uh, want to spend a little more time on something called the Anabaptists. Anna, Anna mean, the word Anna means to read. So the Anabaptists were the, the re-baptizers. What was their issue? Well, uh, this is important, I think, for us as Lutherans because there, there are basically, are there not two, two camps or two understandings of baptism? On the left side, uh, I'm, I'm going to put the infant baptizers, okay? And over here, we will put the, what will, what will we call them? Um, the, the conversionists, we'll make, a, we'll make up a word. Um, the question that somebody would ask you, Larry, the church you go to, do they baptize little kids? Why, why do they do that? Yeah. Why do they do that? What, where's, where's your authority for doing that? But that's the question we get, right? Uh, I don't know where the, where the Baptist church is in. A lot of non-denominational churches, <laughs> community churches, they're really Baptists under disguise. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Baptists figured out a long time ago uh, that if you put Baptist in the word, it changes, turns people off. So put community in the word, or put, um, you know, some nature thing, you know, like, you know, flowing river church or something like that. Radiant, my son yeah, is radiant. Yeah, okay. And, 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 and it's sort of like bait and switch. You know, it's sort of like bait and switch. Uh, but they're but they're they're really Baptists in disguise. Um, but but Larry, getting back to you, um, your congregation baptizes these little kids. Well, how, how, how do you know they take this seriously? And and you know sometimes you baptize them and then you never see them again. Or you baptize them because their grandparents warned you to baptize them or whatever, you know. Why do you do that? Um, are you worried that if you don't baptize them and they're in a car wreck, they go to hell? I've had that one. Mm -hmm. Heather has too. We lost our first son. Remember the direction again? Baptism is gift to us, huh? Uh, because we, well, uh, as you've heard me explain, I think more than once, huh? we, these 19-inch long little people, huh? uh, we bring them to the church when they're the most fragile and the most vulnerable, and you know, so, so that the rest of their life 
They may never make a mistake of thinking it's all they're doing. They, re they receive a gift when, when they're least able to do anything. Because it's God's action for them. God gives them the gift of life. They, 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 never have to, they never have to worry about, well, maybe I didn't earn it. No, you, you got it before you were able to earn it. That's, we always come back to that. It's a, or, as I often say, it's the purest proclamation of the gospel. You, you gave your son the purest proclamation of the gospel. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Yeah, that's why we do it. Um, now we're part of a we're part of a larger community of people that do that. Um, Roman Catholics, Episcopalians, Lutherans of, of all varieties, huh? um, Presbyterians, Methodists, all baptized infants. Now the one danger when I say that is we might think that only infants get baptized. No, but we do baptize people that are not adults. That, that, I think that's important to distinguish. And, and in fact, in the early church, as we talked about what, four weeks ago, adult baptism was really the norm. So that if, if, if Larry is converted to Christianity, Everybody in his whole household gets baptized with him. You bring in the whole bunch, you know, your oikos, your house. Okay, now what's the problem with this? Uh, the Anabaptists grew up in uh, roughly 1530, just right around, right around Luther's time. And, uh, and, and what was their issue? Their issue was uh, this whole direction thing again. Getting back to this whole, but but Larry, all these people that you back these little bitty people you back you never see them again. They don't they take this seriously. So so we have to guard we have to guard against something called cheap grace. Ooh. So how do you guard against cheap grace? Make it expensive, Greg. Huh? Is that the way you do it? So, so let's put something that you have to do in order that God acts for you. So we'll put in there this whole notion of awareness and conversion and witness and and what? Let's make it worthy. And, and so, the Anabaptists, what they rejected was infant baptism because, as they understood, as they understood things, um, that people would not take this serious. They, they, would, they would just simply, um, it was too cheap. But as you know, the gift Baptism is gift. It's not that it's cheap or expensive. It's that it's free. See, I mean, you know, a cheap, a cheap gift or an expensive gift 
gift denotes not cost, but something about the mind of the giver. Why? Because God felt like it. And, and your son received a gift, and, and you received the gift of knowing that God had acted upon your son. That's an entirety. That's that's how comfort comes in, I think. That's that's what that's about. So the, the Anabaptist movement was uh, it swept it swept Europe. It came to the New World, and uh, if we were going to be gathering together next week, we'll talk a lot about it. But we'll talk about it in two weeks. Uh, the frontier movement, the whole frontier movement. What was the purpose of the frontier movement? What was the church doing in early America? It was, it was hell-bent on doing one thing, converting all the heathen. So, so everything, everything that the church began to do when it moved into the new world was to baptize the unbaptized. So the direction you can see then goes toward baptism rather than away from that. So the infant baptizer people say, well, John, the first thing that happened to you, the most critical thing that happened to you happened before you even knew it. You received the gift and the rest of your life you were spent trying to understand, as Luther says, what does this mean? Rather than, okay, John, tell me what it means and then we'll, we'll baptize you. Sort of like, okay, um, tell me what communion means, and then, and then you can receive it. Well, if, if you do that, you got a limited number of people gathered around the altar. Right? I mean, would you baptize any uh, mentally deficient people? What would be your standard? for uh, acceptance of what is a proper understanding of what communion means. You, you see where I'm going with it? It changes then the direction, doesn't it? What becomes important in communion, what I know to be true, rather than what God knows to be true about me. Oh, what does God know to be true about me? I have the need for God's presence. What God has figured out about me. Um, which, um, I'm going to take a little aside. I, I can take a little aside. What it means, though, in, in, in when we make confessions, when we can confess, it's, it's not that we confess the stuff that we do, the bad stuff that we do. That's why I have a problem with a lot of the confessional statements on Sunday mornings. I'm confessing stuff I'm pretty sure I didn't do. And I'm missing the stuff that I did do. But behind all of that is one thing. My condition, which leads me to do the stuff I shouldn't do. And so it seems to me it's accurate and sufficient to confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Uh, rather than, um, 
Let's see, I uh, took two cookies this week and I'm only should have taken one. I, uh, you know, peed outdoors. I don't know what I do. <laughs> but anyhow, you see what I'm saying? Well, welcome to the club. <laughs> okay. uh, my, my point just simply is, we miss the point of our condition, which God responds to. God always responds to our condition, not to the sort of, <clears throat> sort of symptomatic stuff. Uh, and I think that's a that's critical. So that when when Heather absolves us, she says, as a call and ordained minister of the Christ, uh, the Church of Christ, and by Christ's authority, I do what? I, de I declare unto you the entire forgiveness of all your sins. It's not just sort of I'm okay, you're okay. We hear a very specific word addressed to a very specific condition, and and. Uh, and, and Zwingli, excuse me, the Anabaptists, um, that, was, that was something that they, uh, they never, they still do not quite get. They still do not quite get. Which is why if you want to join a Baptist church today, um, probably you will be blessed as a child. You'll be blessed. Um, but upon your your witness um, then you will receive baptism and interestingly enough it usually happens around 12 years old I found a it's a, it's a very interesting sort of coincidence that most Baptist kids arrive at the same point at the same age you're going well, well must be some peer pressure here somewhere you know um, David hasn't made his confession yet or witness yet. Put a little pressure on him to do that. Um, and, and, and so I think that's one of the great that's one of the great fallacies. But we're still we're still divided, are we not? Uh, as, as in, in, in Christian circles, there, there's not a lot of difference between Baptists and Lutheran theologically except for this one practice that governs conversion versus infant baptism. You put a bunch of Baptists in a room, and you put a bunch of Lutherans in a room, and you start talking theology, you're going you're to have a hard time figuring out who's who. Get to the issue of when you're baptized, and the differences become acute. Uh, now, do you consider their baptism also the same as when they have their altar? when they say they accept Christ as their personal Savior. Yeah, but then that is only the first step. Okay. And it leads always to baptism. Okay. It leads... The, the old camp meetings were designed to get people to convert, right. give witness, be baptized, and interestingly enough, um, the camp meetings always stress communion too. So that the newly baptized Baptists have no problem with being born again and then eating quickly. And, and so um, that, that was sort of the mark of tent meetings. Uh, I put down the Anglican reforms. Most of you know that story, I think, of Henry VIII. Uh, Henry VIII had a problem, did he not? He didn't have a, he didn't have a male heir. Uh, he, was bad. he was married how many times? Three? Six. Six. Okay. Uh, he, I mean, 
beneficiary of a fertility clinic, but, uh, but he didn't have that, so he just switched wives. And eventually he found someone who gave him a, a male heir. Uh, of course, his, his wives did not do that, were typically executed or imprisoned. Um, but what happens if you're, if you're opposed by the Pope because of, uh, number one, divorce and multiple marriage, what do you do? Well, if you're the, if you're the king, you call in your advisors, Cromwell and Kramer, and, and you do what? Well, we'll start our own, start our own church. And, and, and I will become the head of the church, not the Pope. So the Episcopal system, uh, Episcopacy really describes a system of governance more than any kind of theological description of anything that's really important. So Episcopal Anglicans are, are British-influenced Episcopalians, and, um, and, and in the U.S., you will find Episcopalians, and then sometimes you'll find what are called Anglican Episcopalians. These are these are people who still have more allegiance um, to, to the kind of English church. Um, you can see what happened. Just a quirk of history. When you uh, go back to the American Revolution, remember there were there were. Uh, there were a lot of Episcopal Anglicans here, Episcopalians here. Um, but in the American Revolution, what do you do? You destroy British authority. And, and, and the American bishops were all appointed by the king. So if you reject the king, you got a problem with no bishops. So, so what did the American church do? Well, the American Church found some Canadians. Because um, to become a bishop, you have to be consecrated by other bishops. So what they did is went not to England, who they had just beaten, but they went up to Canada. And they found a couple of Canadian bishops who would confer rights on, on the newly freed American Church. So the Church now becomes Americanized. Now there are still a good example might be the uh, the uh, cathedral in Eau Claire. The cathedral in Eau Claire is sort of, sort of quirky, it's, it's Anglican, more than more than American Episcopal. And in Wisconsin, we have one Episcopalian seminary that's called the Shoda House, which turns out those people um, far more British than far more British than than American. So if you're interviewing an Episcopalian priest and they say, where do you go to seminary? And they say, oh, we went to Neshota House or we went to Seabury West. You can pretty much pretty much uh, depend on Sunday morning if you're going to be praying for the king or the queen. And, and you will. So, okay. Uh, so uh, I, I listed John Calvin's reforms as the other, the other great reformer. Uh, John Calvin, uh, he, he gave birth to what you know as the American Episcopal Church, and uh, Episcopalian, excuse me, Presbyterianism 
really is a system of governance more than a theological system. So that within a church, within a congregation, you have presbyters. You have pastors, you have presbyters, which are the, the board, I suppose, what would you call it? Like a board of church council, maybe? Board of elders who control that congregation. So in one sense, uh, uh, Calvin's reform uh, was to put in place another whole system of church governance. But the critical thing for Calvin, the critical thing for Calvin was something called predestination. That Calvin believed that God ordained a certain amount, not number amount, of people who would be saved. That some people, Golly, you're saved uh, in spite of, you can't do anything about it. God has already appointed that you shall be saved. Now you can do, you can do, well, we're going to involve Jan in a moment because uh, you can then also have something called double predestination. The double predestination is that, well, if you are saved, Jan, sorry about that, uh, but you are not. So, um, but it was Calvin that, that got into the sort of mind of God and began to began to um, preach about who is saved and who is not, and that was not up to you, Lori. It was already preordained that that would happen to you. Now, if that happens to you, if you are preordained to be saved, this is kind of an interesting little progression then. There are certain ways that you will demonstrate that, huh? Your your favoredness with God. You will you will demonstrate your blessings. And how will you do that? You will do that by being an example of benevolence. And this gave way to an entire economic system that we know in a sense as a form of capitalism that Max Weber, and some of you are familiar with Max Weber, his thesis was that capitalism is an example of evidence that you are blessed. Now, I grew up with Andrew Carnegie. Um, I'm from Pittsburgh, so I can call him Carnegie, and I don't have to call him Carnegie. Um, but we had a whole system of libraries. But why? Because Andrew Carnegie, being Scotch, was came out of the whole Scotch Presbyterian system, and his benevolence was seen as evidence of his being favored. Isn't that the kind of interesting? Um, there's a Presbyterian church in Oakland, the area of Pittsburgh, where University of Pittsburgh is. It's called First Presbyterian. It's, it's also called by the local people Carnegie's Fire Escape. Um, and uh, the most recent member that you already remember, um, John Kerry, married um, mm -hmm. the widow of H.J. Hines, was a member, is still a member of First Presbyterian in Pittsburgh. But uh, you, you can see how it, that notion then of if you're being blessed, well then you got to have evidence of your being blessed, and well is the best evidence we have of your blessing. So that wealth is a blessing. Whoa. And that gave birth to an entire system. 
And Max Weber said the reason that capitalism thrived in the United States was because of that notion, that Presbyterian notion of being blessed. That those that are favored have an obligation to everyone else. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Okay. See you in two weeks. Yeah, Jan. I have a question. question. Yeah. Um, I married a Presbyterian who mm -hmm. was raised at Westminster Church in okay. downtown Minneapolis. Yep. I love, love the pastor. Marvelous preacher. The mm -hmm. union was brought into mm -hmm. the congregation. Yeah. That's a gift. It's a gift, and it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, if you think about it, um, sort of dramatized way of emphasizing that yes. gift. It comes yes. to us. It comes to us. What, what you miss, I think, in that is one sense of people gathered around. That might be, you know, one of the emphases that you would perhaps have people are gathered by the way, Presbyterians typically have been great preachers. And where do they come from? Scotland. <coughs> Scotland. The Scotch, the Scotch produced some of the greatest preachers the church has ever known. Why? Why? Isn't that interesting? When you ask the question, Peter Marshall, Peter Marshall is probably the best example we have. He said that the Scotch people are people of the earth. Out of the earth. The Scots are great storytellers, common storytellers. People of the earth. They, they knew where they were from. And uh, yeah, Edinburgh was the great center of, and still is, the center of the great So that when the Roman Catholics had to learn preaching, where they go? They go to the Lutheran, they go to the Presbyterian. And that's what they did. Okay, peace, Thank you. 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 Thank you.